Well, if you have your Bibles, open in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to uh, really end this book beginning in uh, verse 20, and uh, we're, this, this is it. Uh, we've been walking through this book since the beginning of the summer, talking about what the cross-shaped life looks like. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we really reached the pinnacle of this book to say the cross-shaped life is a life where our weakness equals our strength as we rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's where we are. Next week, we begin a short three-part series on discipleship. What do we even mean when we talk about that term? And then after that, we're going to be spending the rest of 2020 uh, looking at the overarching uh, narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration from Genesis to Revelation, just to uh, teach us more how to operate and, and use God's Word, how to locate our own discipleship in the story of redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. But before we uh, jump into our text today, uh, this, these are the parting words that Paul writes to this church in Corinth before he makes his third visit to them. And, and as I was thinking about his words, I thought about, hey, um, I'm going to go back and do a little research on a visit that I prepared for uh, when my wife came to visit me. We weren't married. We weren't even dating at that point, but we had engaged in about two months worth of emails. Now, my, my wife, being the wonderful person that she is, uh, printed out hundreds of pages of these emails. So we didn't exist in this time where handwritten letters were the thing, uh, but we also weren't in the FaceTime and text messaging world. And so we had all these emails. She printed them out. It's like this three-inch, three-ring binder that we have full of these emails. So I went back. I was like, how did I prepare for the visit, which I knew I was going to, uh, we said DTR, either define the relationship or destroy the relationship. I was going to have that talk uh, with her where, where we, were, we were either going to start dating or not. And so what, what did I put in writing to woo her heart to me when I knew I was going to have this conversation? Like, I'm sure I had some great words to say to her. And so I went back and I looked at the email right before her visit and even a little before and, and just thinking, what did I say? I had to have said some really strong things because we started dating and like six months later we were married. Uh, nine months later we were married. And, and so uh, I go, it was quick, I know. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, I went back and I read and I'm like, yeah, August 6, 2002, here it is. What did I write? It wasn't quite what I was hoping. Um, I told her where to park at my mom's house. Um, and then, I was living with my mom, and, and then uh, I, I said something about how much I like The Rock. The Rock? <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm sure you probably think he's cute or something like that. And like, that, that was it. That was it. That was it. You know what we can call that? An utter failure. <laughs> the fact that she is sitting here on the front row married to me is God's grace to me. After... I go back and see how I wooed her heart. Lord, help her. Um, But anyway, let's jump into our text today to see if Paul did any better uh, than what I did writing to my wife and preparing for this visit. And this is going to be a lot of reading, so just sit tight, soak in it. I just want you to hear the last words he writes before this visit, beginning in 1220. I'm going to read almost to the very end here. But he says this. Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may not find you as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time that I'm coming to you. 
Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that, above, uh, that, uh, that about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find, find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem that we have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Let me pray for us as we get going this morning. Lord, I echo what my brother Ward said at the beginning this morning, where we need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. Father, just this week, being caught up in another conversation where everything just seems hard. Lord, where in my heart, anger is right at the surface. Father, I need to hear from you and from your word this morning. Lord, so many of us need your comfort. We need your care. We need your love. And sometimes that love looks different. But Father, would you grant that to us this morning as we spend the last few moments we have in this book Holy Spirit, speak in and through me and to us through your word, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so how did Paul do? How did Paul do? You think the Corinthians are all feeling the warm fuzzies and they're waiting for Paul to kind of, the dust's coming off his feet as he's walking down the road to Corinth? No. (laughs) No, he probably didn't win any fans uh, with that letter. What, what's going on here, right? Is Paul just a bad writer like me and he doesn't know how to woo people over? What, what was going on as he was preparing here? Well, uh, in part, in 1214, a lot of commentators would agree that Paul was writing to a rebellious minority in Corinth who just absolutely refused to listen to Paul and to listen to God's word. And in fact, 1220 uh, really unpacks what was going on. He says, I fear that when I come, I may not find you as I wish. And he's saying, still rebellious. Still bawling your fist up and shaking it at God. And then he follows, he says, and I'm afraid that you may not find me as you wish. Meaning, uh, I may have to come and actually uh, serve you, right, which we talked about last week, by using the God-given authority that he's given to me and be, he calls it severe in 13.10, for the building up and not your tearing down. And so the end of this letter, I think, still is preparing Corinth through Paul's love for his coming, but it may feel a little bit different. So here's what we see today. 
today. We see at the end of this book love, we see tension, and we see powerful hope, and we see it essentially through uh, what I'm going to use as the outline, the nature of love, the importance of testing, and then the reason for hope. The nature of love, the importance of testing, and the reason for hope. And so let's talk about this nature of love, this first point, as we jump in, because um, unlike my foolish writings to my bride-to-be, I think Paul was actually setting up quite well for his understanding of the nature of love as he was coming to the church in Corinth. And here's the tension that we see in, through our modern eyes, is when we hear the word love, we will often hear it as kind of the feels, the warm fuzzies, the, hey, you need to accept me as I am and how I think at all costs. And if you don't, you've rejected me and there's no way you love me. That's the modern definition of the word love. I think God's word would correct that version. There are some elements that is true. There is some elements of that that is woefully broken. And I think most of us intuitively get that. We'll talk about that here in just a moment, but uh, a, a passage that we may be familiar with, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, which, you know, we love the first part, love is patient, love is kind, right? Now, remember who he's writing this to? The church in Corinth. Now, Paul goes on and gives a more full-orbed view of what love is. It says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, and that's very similar to what Paul says in 13.8. He says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You see, biblical love isn't just about the feels and the warm fuzzies and the accepting me at whatever cost. It's also meaty, weighty, and sometimes that causes tension in our lives because it's not quite exactly uh, how we think it should be. But, but here's some of the ways that Paul loved them. 13.2, he says, I warned those who sinned. He is warning them. Now, let me clear up what he says. Uh, when I come again, I will not spare them. Now, Paul's not going to go in there and go all vigilante on the church when he gets there and he doesn't find uh, what he's expecting or hoping to find. In fact, all throughout this book, and I haven't highlighted these words much, but he uses very technical terms that pertain to church discipline. And so what he's basically saying is, is, is kind of DEFCON 1, the nuclear option, after years in this place of people uh, after being appealed to and not turning away from the things that are destroying them, he's saying, I'm going to have to come in and, and, and see church discipline take, take place there. This idea of discipline is, is something that is not foreign in Scripture. When we see God interact with us, Hebrews 12, 6, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, basically, it says, God disciplines those he loves. And, and if we are a follower of Christ and we are not experiencing his discipline, then it's saying, actually, God may not be our father. Here's a little thought experiment from Paul Gilbert. He's another pastor in Florida. Finish this phrase, right? Spare the rod. Spare the rod. They said spoil the child. Now, that is a misquote of Proverbs 13.24. Uh, it's not actually in the Bible the way we just said it. Yet, if we grow up in any church setting, that's usually what we hear. Here's what it actually says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I'm not going to get into corporal punishment and the rod and, and things like that, but what I want you to see here is it's saying, if parents do not discipline their children, we hate them. Hate them. Hate them. He who loves him is diligent to discipline them. And we get that, don't we? 
I mean, if we let our children eat whatever they want and run towards whatever electrical socket they want with whatever they want in their hands, we don't love them. We actually hate them. This is what Paul, this is how he's interacting with the church here in Corinth. I call this the Gandalf and Bilbo moment. So Ron dusted off the Lord of the Rings illustrations here a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to keep going with it. Uh, my family and I uh, sat down and began to rewatch the Lord of the Rings trilogy here a couple of weeks ago. And there is this one scene where Bilbo is getting ready to go on his long journey. He has the ring of power on him. It has total control over him. It's his idol, if you will. And Gandalf's like, you're going to put it in the envelope and leave and let Frodo have it, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I will. And he tries to sneak out with it. And he puts his dukes up. He's like, Gandalf, you're just trying to take it from me. And Gandalf has this moment where he gets all, he goes from Gandalf to Grey and, you know, can, you know, tender with him, and then it gets all big and dark in the scene, and he goes, do not mistake me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. And then it goes back and he softens. He goes, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. That's how Paul feels right now. He is loving this church in a Gandalf-Bilbo moment. Here's an example of this in my life. I had come to faith my sophomore year of college. I had joined a Bible study uh, and there's a man named Adam who just poured his life into me. He was my Bible study leader. And there was a season where, so I am a hard-headed guy at times. So Enneagram 8, uh, ESTJ Myers-Briggs, that might give you a picture of how bullheaded I can be sometimes. And so um, I, um, essentially I received some devastating news from my father. And I would just say, I took that opportunity to self-medicate, to almost lose, lose my job, to take other people down with me. And I just felt the weight of conviction uh, in that moment. So it was over Christmas break. I went home uh, in Chesapeake, which is where Adam lived as well. And I called him. I said, I got some stuff I got to tell you. So we went to Starbucks and we sat down at a table and I told him what all went on in my, uh, what, what I did. And he just looks at me and he goes, hmm. And he reached across the table and he goes, Phew. he slapped me. And he's like five feet tall and I'm like seven feet tall. And I had a Gandalf moment. Like I stood up and flexed on him. I was like, and I just looked and he goes, I love you. Sit down. I'm like, I just didn't see that coming. And, and so I sat down. Now, caveat, don't ever slap people when you're discipling them or confronting sin. Bad idea, right? Don't do that. I'm not advocating for that. But here's what happened. That was one of the most formative moments in my life. Because this brother was willing to, to have a hard conversation, to call me the carpet. And what he did is he, he then walked me through grace, and he walked me to God's word, and he, and he sat in the, the hard part of what I had heard with me. But he really discipled me. He showed me love that was quite different than uh, what I wanted to hear, but it was what I needed to hear. Friends, I know there are several of you, even in this month, who have done that with another brother or sister in Christ in this church. There are some of you whose lives have turned on those moments where we see uh, another brother or sister loving us by not having the warm, fuzzy conversations, but by confronting, where we are running towards destruction. Here's what I would say. The goal of any of those confrontations we see in 13.9, he says, we pray for your restoration, to restore us to God and to another brother and sister in Christ. It's not to win, it's not to turn them to our side of the argument, but it's to restore us to the person of Jesus Christ. So here's a question. Where might you need to expand your definition of love? Where might this challenge us to expand our definition of what love is? Here's the second point. 
the importance of testing. Here's what Paul does at the very end of this. He has spent a lot of time in this book defending himself, defending his ministry. And at the end, he says, hey, this is not about me. This is about you. And what I want you to do and what you need to do, church, is to, verse 5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And then he says in 6, 7, and 8, to test yourself, test yourself, test yourself. This kind of makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Paul actually bangs this drum quite a bit in the two letters to the Corinthians. Before communion, right, in 1 Corinthians, he says, before you take communion, examine yourself. Test yourself. And what he's talking about is an audit. My mom was a bookkeeper for an accountant, and they would have to do audits regularly, which is basically saying, hey, here's what you say you've, you've bought and you've spent and you've gained as revenue in the books. We need to now come to your office and, and make sure, go through your receipts and everything to make sure what you're saying here is true. And she used to have this plumber, uh, plumbing supply company as one of their companies, and she hated it because she had to go and count every washer, every nut, every bolt, every tool, every piece of PVC. And so uh, it was crazy, but, but what it was is it was getting into the nuts and bolts of their business to say, hey, is what you say on the books matching what's going on in your life? And so what Paul's goal here is when he's saying examine yourself and test yourself is to discipline ourselves to take a good look at our own heart ethically, morally, and theologically. And, says you, and say, you say you line up with Christ, but is it really, is your life matching who Jesus Christ is? Is it moving in that general direction, or are you living a lie? Now, we may read this and say, hey, Paul was assuming that these people in Corinth weren't in the faith, but I don't believe that to be true, because in 13.5, he says, yes, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, but he says, do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul is actually, I think, convinced that the majority of the people he's writing to, even in the rebellious category, are in Christ. But again, what his goal is, is he's saying, hey, some things have broken down, and and we need to ask the Lord to bring you to a place of restoration. You know, my wife sometimes will come home with the old chest of drawers in the back of the van that she finds on the side of the road, and it looks hideous. I'm like, oh no, where are we going to store that? What's going to crawl out of that? Like, what's going on with this chest of drawers? And what she will do is she'll sand it down, and and she'll repaint it and distress it. And one of those things is sitting uh, in our bedroom as our chest of drawers. Beautiful. Paul's saying, examine yourself, because you're, you're not quite looking how you've been recreated to be. So here's some takeaways we can, we can have from this idea of examining ourselves and the importance of it. Um, the first is when we examine ourselves, you know what it's doing? It's meant to help us discern the dominant voice in our life. Examining ourselves, testing ourselves in the faith is meant to uh, examine what the dominant voice is in our lives. There's a lot of voices, right? Paul gives a couple of lists in verses 20 and 21 uh, to basically say, hey, if these things are going off in your life, these lights on your dashboard, then you're probably not listening to the voice of Jesus Christ. The first is what I call the anger and division list, where it's anger and jealousy and strife and, and so on and so forth. That's going back to chapters 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians, where people are saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow this person, I follow that person. And, Paul's, and what's happening is the church has built 
camps where they're basically calling each other out on social media, where they're not having fellowship with one another because they differ politically or with how they're handling the pandemic. Wait a minute, that wasn't Corinth, was it? That's today, right? See, friends, if we're ever willing to put camps up in the church towards other brothers and sisters in Christ for something other than the gospel of Jesus, then we're listening to another voice. It's not Jesus. Anger, jealousy, divisions. The lights are going off, friends. Here's the second category. The other vice list he lists is is down in 21 where he talks about sexual immorality, living sensually, and this is related to 1 Corinthians 5 through 6, which, you know, there's, there's incest, there's prostitution going on in the church, and there's people saying, my body was built for sex, and I'm going to do it however I want. Does that sound familiar? He's saying if we're willing to redo Scripture and call it old and outdated and antiquated to make it say what we want it to, then we're not listening to the voice of Jesus Christ. That is a light going off on our dashboard. Paul says over and over in this book, listen to my voice, listen to my voice, listen to my voice. And you know what? Part of the way we correct listening to other voices and making them the loudest in our lives is by still listening to Paul's voice. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all the other authors of Scripture. Now, when we examine and test ourselves, we get a little nervous because sometimes we go, oh no, am I a Christian? And that's a fair question to ask, but I would say, and one person came up to me one day and said, but I still struggle with this thing. Am I a Christian? And I would say that term struggle is the operative word. Paul here, and we know it by what we see in Corinth, is not demanding perfection. But friends, as Christians, we will battle the things we struggle with until he remakes us for all of eternity. It will be a battle, and it will be a struggle. But as long as there is struggle, I would say there's hope. The problem in Corinth is Corinth had stopped struggling and, settled, and, and reached a place of settled refusal to submit to God, even though they know what he's asking. All right, so let me end with this. This isn't a very hopeful end to the letter. Anthony, thanks for this. Glad we went through 2 Corinthians uh, at this point, right? Here's where I find some reasons for hope in this. First of all, Paul's actions. This is his third visit. Three visits, four letters, sending Titus and all of his friends Paul is persevering because he believes God is at work still in them. And that's indicative of God's posture towards us. Romans 2, 4 says, God's patience with us, which he displays constantly, that is what's meant to drive us to faith and repentance. In 13, 5, where he says, even in the midst of the fact that y'all are a dumpster fire, (laughs) I believe Jesus' power is still at work in you. That's what Paul believed. 13.3, he says, I believe that Jesus is powerfully at work among you. 13.7 and 9, we see that Paul lived this out. He says, I pray that you won't do wrong. I pray that restoration is what's happening in you because Paul knows that no matter how well he writes or speaks, he can't change God's people, but God can. So he prays. Parents with prodigals, that should give us great hope to continue to pray that God is at work in the lives of our kids. 
Paul's hope isn't that they're awesome or behaved, but that Jesus is in them and is at work. Ephesians 5, I read the first part of this, I think it was last week. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, remove the pollution of sin, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, so that he might present the church, Corinth, Dresher, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the story we're in. Now, some of you may say, what happened to Corinth? Like, what happened after this? We don't know a whole lot other than in Acts 20, we see Paul there on his third missionary journey after this, and we see uh, in Romans 15 that Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth after this letter. And so there's got to be some hope there. They're still talking to each other. Something about what was going on in uh, Corinth inspired him by the power of the Holy Spirit to write the book of Romans, one of the most beautiful treatises of theology that we have in all of Scripture. And so I think even in that, there's hope. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church in Matthew chapter 16. Do our hearts reflect that belief? Do our words reflect that faith? Yes, we're in the midst of division. There's immorality in and out of the church. Another Christian leader fell again this week. But can I get us to put one phrase at rest? It's never been this bad. Go read Corinthians, first and second. Incest, prostitution, they're suing each other. There's factions and camps. You know, the worship service looked more like Woodstock than it did a worship service. It has been worse. The gates of hell still will not prevail against his church because for whatever reason, he left the local bodies of Christ to carry on the work of redemption and to be the primary place where he does his work of redemption in our lives. In all of our doomsdaying, are we calling Jesus' words, are we calling him a liar? To conclude, our hope is not in our awesome behavior, but in an awesome Savior who will cleanse his church and whose kingdom will prevail. The cross-centered life is a life that lives out the ultimate paradox of leaning into our weaknesses in a way that yields strength as we allow the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be perfected in us. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, help us not move on too quickly from your words in this book. Help us to see your love for us in your long-suffering patience and mercy towards us, but also in your willingness to correct us. Lord, most importantly, help us to see your love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're giving yourself for your rebellious bride, for me, for all of my friends sitting out here, for those who may be tuning in. You died for us to make us your own as we call on you by faith, to cleanse us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and to one day present us just like you will, Corinth, your pure, spotless bride without blemish. 
Give us that hope in this pandemic, as we see the dark places of our hearts revealed, as we wander from you, as we shake our fist at you, if we slap our head at the actions of another, give us the eyes of faith to see you on the move. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.